I think there are lots of interesting ideas taking hold all across the agency. Uh, people are doing great work. And this is a chance to share ideas, share issues and challenges, and also updates about the great work that we're doing, and to do so in a user-friendly format. I want folks to be able to access this information anytime, day or night, and this just seems like a natural extension for what we've been doing through our, our newsletters over the years. Hi, this is Administrator Mark Green, and I'm excited to introduce a new product we've created for staff. It's a monthly podcast called USAID Leads. In every episode, you'll hear from me, as well as agency staff who specialize in the subjects we'll be discussing. We'll talk about significant events and share exciting updates on what's ahead. I hope you'll find it interesting and informative, and also see it as an opportunity to feel further connected to the important work that we do. A very big hello to my USAID colleagues around the world. I'm Carol Hahn with the DACHA Bureau. In this very first episode of USAID Leads, we're going to hear more about Administrator Green's first 100 days at the agency. We're also going to have an in-depth discussion with a couple of our agency experts on private sector engagement and humanitarian assistance. Hello, Mr. Administrator. Thank you so much for joining us. You've certainly been busy over your first 100 days. If you could humor me, we want to play a, a short audio clip um, and kind of take our listeners back in time. I believe the purpose of foreign assistance should be ending its need to exist. Each of our programs should look forward to the day when it can end. And around the world, we should measure our work by how far each investment moves us closer to that day. That was day one on the job. Seems like a lifetime ago. So I can't take credit for this number crunching, but if I could read just a couple of numbers. 540 meetings and events, 41 speaking engagements, 22 bureau and independent office meetings, and eight international and domestic trips. No kidding, you've been hitting the ground running. How has the work that you've been doing over these first 100 days driven the vision that you laid out for all of us on day one? Well, I, I don't know that it's changed the overall vision, but I think it's informed it, certainly. Uh, I've learned a ton of lessons, both from my uh, time overseas, my trip to the Horn of Africa, and most recently to India, but also just the conversations that I've had with the real experts across the agency. I've seen evidence of why we need to make some of the changes that we are, but also it's, it's just given me wonderful stories that, that remind me over and over again, A, the importance of the work that we do, and, and B, um, how just good our team and programs are. You actually just came back from India after attending the Global Entrepreneurship Summit. What did you get out of that trip? What do you feel was accomplished there? Well, first off, uh, the Global Entrepreneurship Summit, some people might have questioned why a development agency was at an entrepreneurship summit, and it really is the perfect place for a development agency to be, especially uh, an agency that is the premier development agency like USAID, because I think tapping into uh, the work and the partners that we saw there is a way of refreshing the agency, making sure that we are always tapping into the best ideas that are out there, that we are partnering with the private sector and uh, new partners. It was a chance for us also to show the great work that's being done across the agency to help lift up women entrepreneurs. 
uh, women entrepreneurs, not just in private enterprise, but social entrepreneurs, don't always have uh, the attention of the world and uh, the world's partners. So uh, that also, I think, came out of the GES. It was a chance to see Ivanka Trump in action. She was a great spokesperson for women's entrepreneurship, the importance of providing opportunities for women, and so uh, I think that was great, not just for uh, all of us at USAID, but quite good for the U.S.-India relationship. Entrepreneurship has clearly been important to you and the broader topic of private sector engagement. You were recently in Iowa. I think we have a clip that we're going to hear about your time in Iowa. Today we have moved beyond grant making and contracting and instead we're collaborating. We're recognizing that agencies like USAID don't need to be the sole actors in sectors if we can be the catalytic actors in those sectors. USAID has engaged the private sector before. In your opinion, is there anything different about this current approach um, to previous approaches? Well, so we've done public-private partnerships for many years. Uh, but for too many people, that's only meant contracting and grant making. We will continue to do contracting and grant making, but what we're trying to do is go beyond that and to move from contracting to collaborating. So reaching out to the private sector early on in the process for co-design of programs, co-financing of programs, risk sharing, really tapping into some of the ideas that are out there that may be innovative and groundbreaking, and that was on display at the World Food Prize. There are a number of wonderful academic institutions and private sector uh, food companies in America and elsewhere that are doing dynamic things, and if we can tap into what they're doing and applying it to the great needs that are out there, uh, we'll accomplish much more, and I think we'll also enhance the capacity of our, our country partners to take these challenges on for themselves, take responsibility for their own development journey and their own future. So USAID has a real role to play at being a nexus or a matchmaker, if you will, between academic thinking, innovative ideas, and the people who actually do some of the work. So obviously USAID is many things. We are a funder, but I think even more than that, we are a convener, and we're uh, an institution that is able to network and to bring in the best and brightest from all sectors, certainly the development community and humanitarian community, but partner with uh, emerging technology, uh, private enterprise, uh, other donors, uh, multilateral donors. We have the ability to convene them, to bring them together around challenges and apply uh, what is brought up in those sessions to take on these challenges in new and innovative ways. So engagement with the private sector is clearly a crucial priority, but I'm curious about something that's very near and dear to my heart and wondering how those two intersect. Humanitarian assistance. I just looked up the numbers this morning and they indicate that there are more than 135 million people around the world who need humanitarian aid. So at a time of such unprecedented crises, how do we as an agency effectively respond to them? It is the challenge that has probably opened my eyes more than anything else. That, that really is something that I, I don't think I had a true appreciation for before I arrived here at the agency. So you're right, the, the humanitarian need is at unprecedented levels, and, and you can measure that in a number of ways, but by anybody's measure, by any standard, it's staggering and historic, the needs that are out there. 
So I think what we have to do is, is first off, fulfill our commitment to both the American taxpayers and those who we attempt to serve that we will deliver humanitarian assistance in the most effective, efficient way that we possibly can. But I think to be truly compassionate, we have to go a step further, and that's to strengthen the resilience of those communities that we are attempting to work in and with so that they can take on these challenges themselves, not because we want to walk away, but because we believe true compassion is in upholding human dignity and, and building leadership. I, I think it's an inherent part of every human being to want to be able to provide for him or herself and his or her own family and, and his or her own community. We must have an eye toward the future and helping these communities to take care of themselves. Is there anything that you see as a biggest roadblock for, for this agency or for yourself when it comes to humanitarian assistance? Resilience, which you brought up, is by no means easy. Uh, but if there's anything up there that you know, you're like, okay, we're going to have to tackle this and we will together as an agency. Well, uh, we'll never have enough resources to do everything that we want to do. And that's a, that's a given, uh, always has been, and, and sadly, I think, always will be. But I would say the great challenges that I see that, that are really shaping our work and, and, and really testing us, number one, conflict. When we look at the humanitarian, the greatest humanitarian challenges that are out there, they're all man-made. They are driven by conflict. We have an important role, I believe, in preventing conflict, in stabilizing uh, communities, rebuilding institutions in ways that hopefully uh, bring conflict to an end if we can. Related to that, and probably the challenge that I think is testing the agency more than any other right now, uh, the displaced communities. There are about 66 million people in the world who are displaced one way or the other, from refugees to internally displaced to asylum seekers. And that is changing potentially the very model of how we deliver assistance. So for example, if you are seeking to provide some relief and compassionate assistance to South Sudanese, going to South Sudan is not enough because there are 1.4 million in Uganda alone. So this is testing uh, the models that we're all used to in both development and humanitarian assistance. Thank you so much, Mr. Administrator. Next, we're going to be exploring some of these important topics with some of my USAID colleagues who specialize in these areas. I'm joined now by Matt Nims with Food for Peace, Doug Strobes from the Office of U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance, and Sarah Glass with The Lab. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hey, Thanks for letting us be here. So the administrator has spoken a lot about the agency's approach to private sector engagement. I know very well, having worked on a couple of disasters, that we're facing unprecedented levels of humanitarian need around the world. Matt, can you go into a little bit more the challenges that we're facing and in your opinion, what's it going to take to meet them? Definitely. I think it's important to put in perspective what we're looking at this year. And I really use this word unprecedented because it, we have not seen the level of food insecure in general in need on the humanitarian scale since World War II. We're looking at large numbers of displaced people all over the world really adding to the levels of food insecurity that make us use the, the F word in our business, the famine word. We've got four major conflicts raging right now 
particularly in Yemen, South Sudan, Nigeria, and aspects of Somalia that are, again, over 30, now close to 30 million people in need of emergency food security or food assistance on a daily basis. We're just now wrapping up the famine early warning report, the FuseNet report that we, that we fund through Food for Peace at looking at what's happening in 18. And what we're not seeing really is a decline on any of these numbers. Matt, this level of unprecedented need, is it like anything that you personally have seen around the world? I can say that we have not seen this level of need in my career. Um, lots of people we work with, with the UN, the World Food Program, our partners, all talk about the last two to three years as never seen this level of need. What the administrator has said during our conversation is that we need new innovative solutions to some of these growing challenges. Sarah, I just wanted to turn to you. The agency has done a lot of work with the private sector. In your opinion, do you find that it's more critical now more than ever? I mean, if you think about just several decades ago, uh, the majority of financial flows into emerging economies was really coming from official development assistance, with USAID being a huge piece of that assistance. Today, uh, private financial flows now represent more than 90% of financial flows into emerging economies and the places in which we work. And so if we want to truly drive sustained development results, we can't be relevant by just focusing on our 10%. We have to also think about how we work with and how we collaborate with the 90% of resources that are flowing into and investing in the economies with which we work. What makes a good marriage between public and private sector? Any thoughts? So there really it's a question of looking at our joint interests. There are a number of places where increasingly the interests of businesses and, and the interests of USAID overlap. And so working together to understand our goals and find the intersection of those goals is the place that really creates a good marriage. And then I think from there, it's about figuring out how we take those aligned interests and we design programs and activities and we join our voices together in ways that both share risks and rewards of our work together. Now, one of the ways I know that we kind of bring private and public sector together is the grand challenges. And a couple of months ago, the administrator announced a humanitarian grand challenge. It's, it's designed to bring the private sector's best thinking to the humanitarian crises that Matt laid out. Let's take a listen at what the administrator said. In early 2018, USAID will launch a new humanitarian assistance grand challenge. It will be our 10th grand challenge. At the core of each grand challenge is our belief that when government works with the private sector and with innovative and entrepreneurial leaders, there's no limit to what it is that we can do. We can come up with better ideas, better solutions, better methods. Ten grand challenges, Sarah. Historically, have they done? They've done pretty well. Grand challenges are a really great tool in our toolkit of many different things that USAID can do. And I think they work best when we have identified an intractable challenge that we don't yet have the right solution for. And we need to bring a number of different stakeholders together from both the private sector as well as the public sector and civil society to look for new and better answers than what we have today. Can you share any noteworthy grand challenge results? Sure. So I think about the fighting a 
Ebola Grand Challenge. It really initiated from healthcare workers working in the Ebola treatment units. They could only be in an Ebola treatment unit for a small period of time because it was so very hot to be in the personal protective equipment they were working in. We needed to extend the time that healthcare workers could spend truly caring for patients. And it was really very exciting under that Grand Challenge to see representatives from the private sector, including organizations like DuPont and 3M, come together with universities uh, like Johns Hopkins and others, um, as well as small businesses. We even had a wedding dress designer participate um, in designing new approaches to personal protective equipment. And then to see some of those solutions carry into uh, partnerships and licensing agreements with private sector companies where they will ultimately be manufactured and they will become part of the market uh, for solutions not just to future Ebola crises but also to future outbreaks. Doug, why a humanitarian grand challenge? Um, that's a great question because the office is quite excited to um, be working in the Grand Challenges realm, which is a new space for the Office of U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance. Traditionally, Grand Challenges have been focused on the health sector or on development challenges. So we've using this tool that has had such great results in the past to find how do we reach those that are hardest to reach in a crisis, those that are most vulnerable, and deliver that life-saving assistance and life-approving assistance to them that, that are so hard to get to. You mentioned that humanitarian field is not something that we do a lot of grand challenges with. So other than that, is there anything different about this particular grand challenge? The private sector has been involved with us as we've started to create our problem statement and now we're in the process of actually refining what the challenge will be itself. And the private sector has been part of that process. So we're partnering and engaging with the private sector at every step along the way here. And they've proven to be very excited to move into this humanitarian space and have already come up with some really innovative thoughts. A grand challenge will not be a cure-all for everything, and certainly not for the problem of the growing crises um, and growing humanitarian needs. So curious to hear your thoughts on why do it. Well, I mean, Food for Peace, every month, we are buying thousands, well, hundreds of thousands of tons of commodity through the, through the Chicago Grain Exchange. And these are private sector partners that we deal with every day. But what this allows us to do is to start adopting you know, more innovative procurement planning tools through them. It also has allowed us to look at the packaging in a very different way. We are using packaging that's been around for a long time to, to do those iconic food bags all over the world. With some you know, changes on how we do that, we can turn those into mini hermetically sealed bags used for not just storage of our own commodity, but actually for our farmers as well. We can put on barcoding that's pretty much ubiquitous everywhere in the world at a higher degree to be able to track our, our, our commodities at a much higher degree than we've ever had. I would just like to add on to what Matt already said there. In addition to being able to engage with some of our traditional partners, this is a tool for us to reach out to folks that we've never brought into this conversation before. The barrier to entry to engage with the agency is lower on a grand challenge because the risks are lower in this initial stage. And so we have to start thinking about ourselves as USAID as not just a procurement organization, but a partnership organization. The private sector is interested in working with us. They are focusing on societal and developmental challenges. And so the question is, how do we harness that? When it comes to saving lives, the more people at the table, it sounds like, the better. It sounds like the, a grand challenge is only as good as the participants. I'm curious as to what could all of us 
the USAID community do to ensure this humanitarian grant challenge will be successful? What we anticipate happening in early 2018 is the administrator will actually announce what our specific challenge question is. And once that announcement goes out, then we'll be hoping all of our colleagues within aid will reach out to their social networks, the traditional implementing partners, and their colleagues around the world to share the excitement that we have for this challenge and get as many proposals, as many reactions to this challenge as possible. Sarah, I see you nodding. Yeah, I am very excited to see the uh, various different stakeholders that come to the table. Uh, I think it's also as we think about next steps, I know that a number of mission uh, and bureau teams across USAID are thinking very proactively about how to engage the private sector. I would just highlight that there are a number of resources available to mission teams, both within USAID Washington as well as through uh, in the field through mission teams that have been doing this for a long time to help you engage the private sector whether you're looking to engage large multinational companies or you're looking to engage small businesses and local businesses there in your communities. Matt, what are your, what's your take on how successful a grand challenge could be? Again, I don't, I don't think that there probably is any one silver bullet. But I think given the enormity of what we're seeing, it's actually incumbent upon us to be looking for new ways to address this. And we need that engine of the private sector to help us think differently of what's going on. And while the agency has been involved with the private sector for quite a while and has strong engagement with the private sector, it's new for the humanitarian space and the humanitarian community. So we're very excited. And so in your mission, as you're thinking about designing programs to engage the private sector, think about tools like prizes and challenges, as well as tools like the Development Credit Authority to access loan guarantees, the Global Development Alliance. There's a brand new program actually focused on blended finance where we're co-investing with the private sector. And USAID actually just launched uh, our first two development impact bonds. I'd be remiss also if I didn't mention the focus that we have on regulatory reform and policy reform that creates strong investment climates. So there really is a host of tools that you're able to access in order to think about how to drive increased sustained development results at scale in collaboration with the private sector. Speaking to all of you has gotten me quite excited about this humanitarian grand challenge and I'm hoping that our listeners will be excited too. Thank you so much for joining us and I really look forward to checking back in with you in 2018. Thank you. Super, thank you. Thank you. Hi everyone, we definitely want to be hearing from you. Just as we've done in previous town halls, you'll find a poll on MyUSAID where you can propose ideas or vote on questions and explore opportunities to participate in an upcoming episode with the administrator. You can find the poll by searching hashtag USAIDLeads. And with the little time we have left, we're back with the administrator for a discussion about what's around the corner. We're now nearing the end of the year, Mr. Administrator. Curious, what's up next? Well, first I'm going home for the holidays, back to Wisconsin. I am a cheesehead and will uh, go back, shovel snow at my parents' place in Green Bay and spend some time uh, with family reconnecting. So that's, uh, that's coming up and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, we're going to have a very busy 2018 and it gets busy right off the bat. We have a couple of grand challenges that we'll be formally announcing and I think those are both great opportunities for us to reach out to those who may not have partnered with USAID before. So we're going to be soliciting the best ideas that we can find and that'll, uh, I think, refresh and empower our work. 
the world is not getting less complicated, but I think um, you know we're up for it, and I look forward to 2018. I'm going to put you on the spot with this question here. What are your thoughts about some of the staff you've been working with at USAID? I would say the greatest strength that we have is that everyone who comes to USAID knows why he or she is here. We have a mission-driven staff. And if you have a mission-driven staff, you can do almost anything. I've been really impressed with the way that people have embraced their work, even in changing circumstances. As we've been talking about ways of reposturing the agency, and nobody's thrown up their hands and, and said, no, you know, we, we just want to keep doing things the way that we are. People have said to me over and over again, you know, look, um, let, let's talk about this. Let's figure out the way that we can make ourselves better and more effective. So again, if you have motivated, mission-driven team members, you can take on any challenge. During this time of uncertainty, and you mentioned it, I mean, we're living in a world that's dominated by just uncertainty everywhere. I think it might be something that some of my colleagues might be feeling. Any message for all of us out there regarding uncertainty? Well, uh, uncertainty is a fact of life. I, I think one thing to remind ourselves of is this is not unprecedented. I often talk about a conversation I had with General Brent Scowcroft, who was President Bush 41's National Security Advisor. And I remember him saying to me at an organization where I worked, he said, you know, when you look back on the fall of the wall and the reunification of Europe, he said, now everybody looks back and says it must have been easy. And he said it wasn't easy and it was in doubt. And he said there were serious challenges. Uh, I, my own parents, my mother was a little girl in London during World War II and she talked about what it was like to live in the bomb shelters and spend those time uh, really uh, away from her family. Those kinds of conversations should remind us that while this isn't easy, uh, we have faced challenge before. We have faced crisis before. If we believe in our vision, our values, and ourselves, we'll be okay. We are an important part of American foreign policy and I wouldn't trade USAID and the team at USAID for anything or anyone. Any last thoughts? Well, I hope everyone has a peaceful, safe holiday season. Uh, it's a chance for us all to uh, uh, be thankful for what we have, the many blessings that we have. You know, I think sometimes we forget, um, and I would say it's less so with the people that work at USAID. Uh, we do have our challenges here, back here in America, but uh, on the other hand, there are so many challenges around the world. We are truly blessed to be where we are. We're truly blessed to work for USAID, and we're truly blessed to be part, I think, of the solution and the answer. We really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Administrator. Looking forward to connecting with you soon with the next episode. I look forward to it very much. Thank you. Thank you.